You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Luke chapter 11, of course, sits within the discipleship section of Luke's gospel. And here in Luke 11, Jesus is going to very specifically disciple his men in the role of prayer uh, in their lives. And Jesus, of course, brought a concept of a personal relationship with God to mankind, praying to him as our father in heaven, which he becomes by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in Luke 11, 1 through 13, Jesus will give us the content of prayer. And then uh, in verse 5 through 13, he'll give us the mindset of prayer. Now, all of this had a beautiful backdrop that we should not miss. In verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So there's this moment where Jesus is uh, in prayer. And it is worthy, I think, of noting that that moment did end. It says that when he Finished, And I think that the reason that that's worth noting is that Paul tells us that we're to pray without ceasing. There's to be a continual attitude of prayer and connection to the Father in the life of a believer. And of course, Jesus had that without ceasing, continual connection to the Father uh, kind of life and relationship uh, with God the Father. Of course, Jesus had that. However, sometimes it seems that people might use that concept to say that they don't ever need to have a designated time where they specifically go to seek God's face uh, in prayer. But Jesus did. So that that moment was finished. He's still in the continuation with God, but that designated moment of prayer comes to an end uh, there in verse 1. And at the conclusion of it, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. It seems as if there was something that that disciple had just observed that he wanted. Uh, Just watching Jesus, we don't know if Jesus prayed audibly, uh, whether this was silent, whether it was just the visual posture that Jesus was in that the man observed. And and as he saw it, he, he knew that there was something powerful happening there, but he wanted whatever it was that he saw in that moment. And he says to Jesus, Lord, teach us, Not how to pray, but teach us to pray. Almost as if to say, I don't know what I've been doing up until this point, but it hasn't been prayer. I don't need to know how to improve my prayer life. I just need to know how to do it in general. 
uh, kind of like a, a musician who thinks they can play an instrument and then gets around an expert master level musician and just sets down their instrument and says, I don't know what I've been doing up to this point, but I have clearly not been playing my instrument. Teach me to pray, this disciple says to the Lord. Now, you do get an interesting window into John the Baptist's ministry when the disciple says, as John taught his disciples. So apparently, uh, John the Baptist had given some time and teaching to his disciples on teaching them uh, how to pray. Some of Jesus's disciples had started out as disciples of John the Baptist. So inevitably, they would have discussions about what that was like. And word had gotten out amongst the disciples that John had taught his followers how to pray. And so this man says, hey, you know, John did it. Could you teach us to pray? I wonder what it was like to be in John the Baptist's school of prayer. The Pharisees, of course, were so rigid and external and uh, religious uh, in their prayer lives. Uh, they had systematized Daniel's three times per day style of prayer, sucked the life out of it and, uh, you know, went through it with fine detail, but there was no life to it. Uh, not only that, but of course, we learn in Matthew 6 that there was a public hypocrisy to the prayer life of the religious leaders of the day, uh, really a very public kind of display so as to seem uh, very religious and very godly. And so you can imagine how John would have railed against that kind of prayer life. But, but here, the teaching is not from John, but from Jesus. Jesus said to them in verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, at this point in Jesus's ministry, he's already delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And as we saw previously in Luke chapter 6, it seems as if those themes and concepts were not just delivered in one place, but in many places by the Lord. And so these disciples had already heard the perfect template for prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Here, Jesus will repeat it. There will be some slight differences and some omissions, which helps us understand that this is more of a model and a template for prayer than something that we're to repeat verbatim. But we are to say something, and here's what we are to say. And, and it's important, I think, to notice that the first couple of elements of this prayer are things that we desire to get for God. We're not going to God to get something for the self, but to get something for God. That's the prayer of the disciple, but it begins relationally by addressing God as our Father. I talked to a Pakistani pastor recently who just loved the Lord so much. And he was just talking to me about his personal prayer life. And he said, you know, I call him daddy. That's how I prayed it to God. I, I call him daddy. And I think that captures the sentiment of what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, and here he is teaching these men how to pray, and he's, he introduces them to something incredible in the mindset that they would have had at the time. And he tells them, listen, you are able to pray to him as a father. We learn in Ephesians 1 verse 5 that the gospel message, when you give your life to Christ, what you learn is that you have been predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God becomes your father, you become his child. Now, intuitively, we know what a father is. And we might not have experienced it practically or experientially in our own lives, but we know that a father provides wisdom and direction and teaching and perspective, that a father gives protection in the form of provision and defense and boundaries, that a father gives love in the form of care and sympathy and compassion. And so to come to him as father puts it on a very relational, developmental, help me progress and grow as a humble child before you kind of level. The first prayer, Father, hallowed be your name. The name means his reputation. In other words, our first prayer is for God's reputation. God, we want your reputation to be hallowed, respected, revered, honored, feared, including within our own self and within the church community. And so this prayer is basically a prayer for God's reputation and fame and honor to be held high and respected uh, in this uh, world. And this is a prayer and a sentiment that guards us personally from great folly. When the prime desire of my heart is for God's reputation to be highly esteemed, that's in one sense the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there's protection from so much of the folly, the temptation that will come across our paths when we desire more than anything for a reverence of God's name. The next thing that we would pray is your kingdom come. Our second prayer really is for God's message to advance and for God's kingdom to be established. There's the current reality of God's kingdom in the hearts of believers and a future kingdom that will be visible to the world and will last eternally. And so there's this desire, this longing for his spiritual and eventual physical kingdom to uh, manifest itself and for the spiritual kingdom to grow. And I think if we're honest, this is probably one of the most difficult areas of prayer for many believers to engage in because it's easy for us to be overwhelmed with the intricacies of our own daily lives and experiences and in being overwhelmed with those things, forgetting all about the kingdom of God, forgetting to pray for churches and leaders and new churches and the harvest and laborers, and to pray for missions and countries and, and to pray for communities and for the lost and to pray in these kinds of ways for God's kingdom to come oftentimes are forgotten by believers. But we are talking here about the way that, that disciples pray to God. We pray for God's kingdom to come. You, you might need to 
create a list for yourself. You might need to, uh, you know, really work at this portion of prayer, but this is where we pray. And I think this helps us understand, in one sense at least, that prayer is not just simply the releasing of our hearts to God. Our hearts are not born thinking about the kingdom. Our hearts might be overwhelmed with the daily affairs of our own lives, but there's a level of mental concentration and focus that brings us into prayer for the kingdom. Now, after that, it's so beautiful how God is willing to hear prayer concerning the, that which we would say is always of eternal significance. You know, the kingdom work of God. We'd say that is of the utmost priority and importance. And I know of some who would even say, uh, you, you know, really, you don't want to be praying about any other element in life. But, you know, in verse three, Jesus goes on to tell us that there are prayers that we pray concerning our individual lives right down to the concern for our daily bread. He says, verse three, give us each day our daily bread. Some early commentaries on this couldn't even believe that Jesus was focusing on something so mundane. They tried to say that this was somehow some kind of spiritual bread that Jesus was speaking of. No, Jesus is saying, listen, you have needs. Bread is a great symbol for, if you will, of the basic needs of life. And so go to God and ask him daily to provide for you that day's worth of bread, the basic necessities of life. Look to God each and every day. I love the proverb in chapter 30 of Proverbs, verse 7 to 9. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. He announces here, he says, listen, uh, it's important. What I want, God, more than anything is that you would just give to me that which I need. I don't want more than I need, lest I forget you. And I don't want less than I need, lest I be tempted to sin in order to provide for myself. Give me what it is that I need. And just the desire of God for us to go to him concerning our daily necessities, our daily needs. Feel that freedom and permission to run to him over these matters. Now, in verse four, he says, additionally, that we are to pray and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The natural state of a believer is, you know, we're forgiven. We're forgiven by God. So we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. But the interesting thing here is that we are to pray for the forgiveness of God over our or from our sins. Forgive us our sins, Jesus said we are to pray. Now, this might strike some of us as an odd prayer to pray because 
we understand that when we give our lives to Christ, when we believe on him, place our faith and trust in him, we receive many things from God. We receive justification. We receive adoption. We receive an inheritance with the Lord. We receive uh, just so many powerful and wonderful things. But one thing that we know that we receive is forgiveness. It's one of the beautiful offers that we receive from the Lord. We receive forgiveness. The forgiveness of God, the cleansing of God. So why would I then be praying for God to forgive me if I've already received forgiveness? Well, the reality is, is that positionally, we have absolutely received God's forgiveness. He looks at you and he sees you without blemish. He sees you without flaw. He sees you as his own son. He sees you as forgiven. That is the statement that is placed over your life. But at the same time, the Father looks upon us and he also sees ways for us to grow, ways for us to be chastened, ways for us to mature. And so this seems to be a way for us to pray for God's sanctification in our lives. Jesus told his disciples when he washed their feet before he went to the cross, he said, you're clean, but not all of you. You're clean, but I need to wash your feet. In other words, here we are walking through this world. We do need the cleansing of God as we brush up against sin, as we ourselves enter into temptation and do sin. We need the forgiveness of God. We need to be cleansed. We want to desire to grow. So really, I think in one sense, this is prayer for personal growth and sanctification in the Christian life. And finally, at the end of verse four, the prayer is, and lead us not into temptation. Now we know, of course, that God cannot tempt us. James 1 verse 13 to 15 makes that very clear. God cannot be tempted himself, so he himself tempts no one. So why would I pray and lead us not into temptation? Now, some people think that what Jesus is saying is that uh, he's saying, lead us not into testing. It's really the same word. Uh, lead us not into testing, uh, lest I sin in that trial or in that testing. Uh, the reality, however, is that we will go through testing. That is going to be a part of the Christian experience and life. You could pray every day that you would be not led into tempting, and there would be a day that you would be led into a time of uh, trial and testing. What seems to be happening to me is that Jesus is teaching us to take in prayer and to make preemptive strikes in prayer against the temptation that will come in our lives. And that when the temptation comes, we're saying, Lord, when that moment comes, lead me not into it, but lead me out of it. That's what I need, Lord, in my life. When the temptation comes, I need your leadership in my life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so sometimes the way of escape is prayer. 
And, you know, the Lord will answer this prayer, I think, in so many beautiful ways. Sometimes he'll actually just answer this prayer, lead us not in a temptation, by giving you some very practical wisdom and discernment on different environments that you shouldn't put yourself in or different freedoms that you cannot handle. I, I know some guys that just cannot handle the freedom of having the Internet in their pocket on their mobile phone, and, and they just can't handle it. That, that level of temptation is just way too strong. And so they have to go through the process of locking down their phones in such a way so that they are unable to get themselves online on their phones. And, you know, that could be wisdom that comes when you pray and lead us not into temptation. Now, in verse 5, Jesus has already, of course, given us that beautiful disciples prayer, shown us some of the content of our prayer before God. But what is my mindset to be when I come to God in prayer? Well, he said to them in verse five, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, this uh, is a question, I believe, that Jesus is asking. And it's a very cultural, a very uh, specific cultural setting that this story would have made sense in. A very Eastern uh, kind of mentality. Hospitality would have been mandated for the care of a traveling friend. So, you know, in our culture, you wouldn't go to your next door neighbor and pound on the door asking for food for family that just arrived in town. You'd be expected to go to the grocery store and to do that yourself with a 24-hour, uh, you know, grocery store or something like that. Uh, that's what would happen in our Western culture. But in that culture, there was no store to go to. You would bake the bread that you would eat for the day for the most part. And so all the food was gone. And there he is at night. And you would be expected to care for this traveler. He goes to his friend's house. And the concept is understood. These homes were very small, oftentimes just a one-bedroom home. The whole family sleeping in that one uh, room. And so Jesus asks the question, which of you will have a friend that when you go knock on his door, because you know that he has some bread, that he would get up and actually say, I can't help you. The door is shut. My kids are with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus said, no, verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence or literally his shameless audacity or lack of shame because of that he will rise and give him whatever he needs and i tell you ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened now i have to say this the most common interpretation of what Jesus is saying here when he tells this story is that one of the mentalities that we should have in prayer is that of persistence, persistence before God. 
And of course, not a vain repetition kind of persistence. Jesus rebuked that in Matthew chapter six. We're not to just with empty phrases, repeat things to God, uh, but that we're to be persistent uh, before the Lord. And I, and I think that there are other biblical passages that would teach us at least of some level of persistence uh, before God. But uh, there's a, another line of interpretation that is not as popular, but I, I tend to hold to it uh, myself. And, and it's, it's that, that Jesus is teaching something altogether different from that. That what he's saying is, which of you has a friend like that? Which of you would have a friend who would say, I can't get up and help you? No, you don't have any friends like that at all. Instead, they would get up and not even because you're friends, but because of your asking there in the middle of the night, they will get up and give you whatever you need. And I think that what Jesus is saying when he says, ask and seek and find, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. When you knock, it'll be open. I think that the mentality that Jesus is teaching us is not necessarily to be persistent in prayer, like he's this grumpy friend who will finally answer, but that he is saying that we are to be a people who believe that God is ready to answer prayer and that God is ready. And so I, th I think that's the philosophy that Jesus is telling us here in this section, that God is ready, that God is ready, that he knows what we need before we ask him. And so with that understanding, run to him, go for it and ask and seek and knock because God is so ready to give and so ready to allow you to find and so ready to open. There is a line of supply for the disciple. So just a beautiful reality. And of course, only a disciple could pray in this kind of way. Jesus then, and I think this is part of the reason why I think that that's what he's teaching. Uh, he gives again a comparison there in verse 11 when he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, and I just love how Jesus does that, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, of course, no father would be so cruel as to give his, serpent a, his son a serpent when he asks for fish. And no father would be so cruel as to give his son a scorpion when he asks for an egg. You know, even earthly fathers have figured out how to give good gifts to uh, their children. But, you know, somehow, sometimes we think God operates like this, don't we? We think that the worst and most horrible things are going to happen to us. We're going to ask God for one thing, and he's going to answer with some horrible thing that we never even wanted, but nevertheless is inside of his will for our lives. Listen, the reality is that whatever God gives is the best for our lives. But when he does those things in our lives that seemingly on the surface are so hard and so difficult, the reality is, is that he wants to change our hearts so that we're ready for those things. You might not feel ready to go on a mission to Africa, but the missionary who goes to Africa, their heart has been prepared by God to where that is the thing that they desire to do more than any other thing. 
And so the father knows how to give good gifts to his children. And here, Jesus says, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, when Jesus said this uh, similar teaching in Matthew 7, Jesus said, how much more will the heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Which is true. But the best thing of all the good things is the Holy Spirit. I think in one sense, uh, another philosophy of prayer is just simply to know that God is good. God is ready, but God is good. And the best thing that he gives is more of himself. And really the best way to pray is to pray in a way, to pray prayers that when they are answered, the best way for them to be answered is for more of God's presence, more of the Holy Spirit. And really, this is what we need more than anything to become more like Jesus, which is the ultimate answer in all prayer. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.